Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. In the mid-1980s, when I served our congregation in Provincetown as it was ravaged by the AIDS crisis, I regularly answered the doorbell of the meeting house to earnest young men, visitors to the Cape, who were eager to ensure the state of my soul and the soul of my people for eternity. I was endlessly irritated at the interruption of these proselytizing fundamentalists and offended by their mission. Polite through gritted teeth, I sent them away. And then my friend and colleague Jay said that it was absolutely critical that I speak with them that I share Unitarian Universalism's good news of a God of love, a prayer of service, and a faith in the possibility of heaven on earth with no fear of an afterlife in hell. Jay, I said, the theory is great. (laughs) But they're gleefully spewing hatred and divisiveness and terrible theology, and I can't get a word in edgewise. I know, he said. And then he surprised me. I was one of them. It was all I knew until I was just a little older than they are. And then gradually I just couldn't reconcile everything I'd been told with the person who stood before me, a child of God, just like me. I acted like I wasn't listening, Jay said, but I was. I'd start in on one of them, and even though I kept right on talking, I began to listen just a little bit to those who were willing to tell me their stories. That first flicker of doubt grew into a steady flame. And then he says, a pride parade came marching right past my church. I came outside to pray for those poor sinners. But when I saw how much love and sheer joy were in the streets that day, I just broke. I broke right open. They were singing and cheering off of the sidewalks and into the streets. And I found myself stepping down off the church steps and into the crowd. Oh, I looked back, he said. I looked back, but I never returned. When I am tempted to hopelessness about the vast divide in this country today between us and them, I remember this conversation. Here's the directive. 
listen, try to understand why they believe what they believe, and speak. Get really clear and really articulate about what you believe, and just keep talking, even when you think they're not listening. This is a spiritual practice. Don't give up. I know another story uh, is widely reported by journalists Studs Terkel, Osha Davidson, and Katherine Schultz. It played out almost 50 years ago in Durham, North Carolina. I'm going to begin on April 4th, 1968, the day that Dr. King was murdered. Claiborne Paul Ellis, called CP, owned a gas station, and on the side he ran the Durham branch of the Ku Klux Klan. When Dr. King's death was announced on the local radio station, CP let out a whoop and began calling his fellow Klansmen, inviting them over to celebrate. We just had a real party at the service station, he said, really rejoicing. By the 1960s, 112 chapters of the KKK included eight or 9,000 members in North Carolina, the most active and best run in the nation. In Raleigh, future Senator Jesse Helms used weekly news commentaries on TV and radio to denounce Dr. King and the civil rights movement and to expound on, quote, purely scientific evidence about the so-called superior race. So C.P. Ellis grew up poor and uneducated in this cradle of white supremacy. He had dropped out of school in the eighth grade, married at 17, and despite working every day, he could barely support his family. The Klan provided him with the explanation for why his life was so hard, quote, because of black people, and white supremacy gave him a little bit of self-respect. In 1954, Brown v. Board of Education had declared school segregation unconstitutional, but fully 16 years later, it hadn't made a difference in North Carolina. In 1970, the federal government directed $75 million to desegregate North Carolina schools. An organizer named Joe Becton was charged with organizing workshops in Durham to persuade the citizens to cooperate with the law. Joe chose C.P. Ellis as the best person to represent the city's poor, white, anti-integration citizens. C.P. wasn't having it. You can imagine his response. But Joe insisted that C.P.'s constituents needed a spokesperson. Eventually, he relented. Meanwhile, organizers across town recruited an African-American community leader named Ann Atwater to represent Durham's most impoverished and disenfranchised black citizens. Married at 13 years old, she was left by her abusive alcoholic husband to raise two daughters on her own. Despite hard, hard work, she could not make enough money to lift her family out of poverty. 
She poured her anger into activism, educating welfare recipients about their rights, organizing housing protests against unscrupulous landlords, and serving as the unofficial mayor of her neighborhood. Journalist Osha Davidson tells the story of their first meeting. C.P. Ellis opened by losing his temper over the premise of the workshops, that racism was a problem in the schools. If we didn't have those expletives deleted in the schools, we wouldn't have problems, he shouted, and Ann Atwater came right back at him. The problem is that we have stupid white crackers like C.P. Ellis in Durham. Bill Riddick, the man charged with running the workshops, stepped in and asked them to serve as co-chairs. <laughs> Constituents on both sides were appalled. Both CP knew the Klan was powerless in the face of the Supreme Court decision. And when he really searched his heart, he decided that all he could do was, this is how he said it, help make desegregation less painful for white children, starting with his own. The first meeting of the newly minted co-chairs of the desegregation workshops took place in a coffee shop in downtown Durham. CP paced, unwilling to sit down with a black person. When he finally did sit down, he spoke to Ann Atwater through Bill Riddick. It was an inauspicious beginning. A few nights later, CP picked up the phone in his apartment. You keep working with those expletive deleteds and you're gonna get yourself shot. The line went dead, but CP didn't put down the phone. Instead, he called Anne and he told her he wanted to make the program work. Shortly after that, at the end of a workshop, Anne and CP found themselves alone in an auditorium. Somehow they started talking about their children's experiences at school. Both Anne's daughter and CP's son attended the same high school, the poorest in the district. As Anne described her humiliation at not being able to provide her kids with what other kids had, and her deep desire to keep them from feeling ashamed, a jolt ran right through CP he recognized that Anne's struggles were exactly his struggles. And to both of their amazement, he began to cry. For himself and his children, and astonishingly for Anne's children, and for Anne. C.P. Ellis later told Studs Terkel that that was the moment. For the first time, he looked at Ann Atwater and saw another human being. He said, I began to see, here we are, two people from the far ends of the fence having identical problems except her being black and me being white. The amazing thing about it, her and me up to that point had cussed each other, bawled each other out, we hated each other. Up to that point, we didn't know each other. We didn't know we had things in common. From that moment on, I tell you, that gal and I worked together good. I began to love her, really. The workshops lasted 10 days, 
during which CP met African Americans who lived in substandard housing, sent their children to substandard schools, and worked substandard jobs for substandard pay. They were not his problem. They were just like him with one crucial difference. He was their problem. And what had the Klan actually accomplished for white people? Nothing. All it had done was to make black people's miserable existence more miserable. C.P. Ellis went to a meeting of the local KKK chapter and turned in his keys. From the time Joe Becton had invited him to participate in the workshops to the moment C.P. stood to speak at the closing ceremony, only a few short weeks had elapsed. A few short weeks that utterly changed his life. Something has happened to me, he said. And he paused for a long time. I think it's for the better. People told him that his transformation had cost him his standing among the power brokers of white supremacy in his community. That may be true, he acknowledged, but I have done what I thought was right. Ann Atwater continued to work with black people who were poor. Eventually, she remarried happily and became a deacon in the Church of Christ. For 34 years after he left the Klan, C.P. Ellis worked as a union organizer. After he retired, when asked about his greatest professional accomplishment, he said without hesitation that it had been helping 40 low-income African-American women negotiate the right to take Martin Luther King Day as a paid holiday the first contract in Durham to honor Dr. King's memory. Beloved spiritual companions, listen. Try to understand why they believe what they believe and speak. Get really clear and really articulate about what you believe. And just keep talking, even when you think they're not listening. We didn't know each other. We didn't know we had things in common. I began to love her, really. This is a spiritual practice. Don't give up. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email at office at ASCBoston.org or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a contribution by checking the mail or through our website, ASCBoston.org.